All right, go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3 is where we're at today, finishing up our series on the seven letters to the seven churches. We've kind of been doing a mini-series within our Revelation series, slowing down in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. My name's Cody. I'm the pastor here at Redemption. It's my honor to serve you in the scriptures. I love uh, being able to, to stand before you and open up God's word and just travel through it together. And it's my hope, my desire that as we go through this, that you'll see very clearly that God's word is on display. That, that it's not just my thoughts, my ideas. I'm not just doing some magic tricks up here and coming up with things, but that you're clearly able to see as you put your eyes on the Bible exactly what it is uh, uh, that we're going through and that it's clearly uh, spoken there. So if you don't have a Bible and you need one, there's a pew in, uh, one in the pew in front of you. Or there's also, you can use the YouVersion Bible app and go to the events and you can follow along with the event there as well. And uh, it'll have all the scriptures and everything for you and some of the notes too. All right, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 is where we're going to be at today. Now, as we introduce this idea, in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said that he is the light of the world. That's one of the things that Jesus said about himself. I'm the light of the world. It's one of the seven I am statements through the gospel of John that Jesus makes. Also, though, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you're the light of the world. So, which one is it? I mean, did Jesus get confused? Did he forget that he was the light? And then he said that you are. What's going on here? Well, the, the reality is that Jesus is saying that you are the light of the world uh, by reflecting his light into the world, right? It's not that you have some sort of light and we just all need to, you know, stoke our light and we can all just hurrah ourselves and be better and try harder and then our light is going to be so great. No, it's that his light is the source of our light. And the only way that we can be lights in this dark world is when we reflect the light and glory of Jesus, very much like the moon does, right? Maybe you've heard that analogy before, that we're like the moon. The moon is not a source of light in itself. All it can do is reflect the glory of the sun. That's all it does. Um, but there comes a time when sometimes the moon doesn't do that. Uh, during a solar eclipse, the moon will actually get in front of the sun. And at that point, what it's doing is it's it's blocking the light and glory of the sun. It's not reflecting the light and the glory of the sun. And as I think about that, one of the things I think about is how if we get our eyes off of Jesus and instead we put our eyes onto the world, we will do the same thing. Instead of reflecting the light and glory of Jesus, we'll end up blocking the light and glory of Jesus. We won't see it because our backs will be to Jesus and we won't be able to do what God wants us to do to be the light of the world, when we look for approval from the world, when we seek satisfaction from the world, when we try to fit in with the world, we turn our back in Jesus and stand in the way. And instead of reflecting his glory, we end up blocking it. And that's exactly the problem taking place in Laodicea in our section here in Revelation 3. The big idea today is this, that complacency obscures your ability to see Jesus clearly and reflect Jesus correctly. That when we have a complacent attitude, when we just have a, a good enough mentality, then we end up getting in the way. Let's read Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 together, and then we'll go back through and break it down. It says this, Revelation 3, 14, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. 
So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed." And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear to ear, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, to study it, to give our attention to it. And we pray that as we look upon your word, that you would speak to us. God, help us to know more than just information and facts about you, but to know you, to draw near to you, to be closer to you, and that when, when we do so, when we uh, come to you in that vulnerability, that you would be the one who changes us, that you would make us more like you, that you would, you would remove the parts of us that are broken and sinful and wayward, and you would replace them with your character, with your goodness, and with your righteousness, that we would become the redeemed version of ourselves that you intended when you made us. So, Lord, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you today as we open your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today, as we look at Revelation 3, 14 through 22, we're going to break it down into three parts today, okay? Verses, uh, four, verse 14 is the first verse, a vision from Jesus, and then 15 through 18, a correction from Jesus, and then 19 through 22, a promise from Jesus. Now, as you've uh, heard me say every single time all the way through, uh, these seven individualized letters is what makes up Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and they are written to a, an individual church, and the angel there we've identified as the pastor of the church or the representative of the church. And so when Jesus says to the angel of the church of and then fill in the city, he's saying, I want to write a letter to a certain pastor in this certain city. And part of this that we see here in, the, in Revelation 2 and 3 is we find ourselves in the second portion of Jesus's divine outline for the book of Revelation. That comes from Revelation 119 where he says, write the things which you have seen, that's chapter 1, and the things which are, that's chapters 2 and 3, and then, uh, and the things which will take place after this, that's chapter four through the end of the book of Revelation, which we'll get into next week. And I'll show you that transition there as well. All right. So that's where we're at in uh, this and all of these letters, they follow a similar pattern and have similar application and all of those things. So let's just jump into it. Uh, a vision from Jesus, verse 14, look back at verse 14. It says into the church, uh, to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? Uh, Laodicea uh, is a city in, in uh, ancient uh, um, Turkey, right? That's what Asia is. When it says the churches of Asia, it's Asia Minor. It's not China and Japan and the Philippines or whatever you think of when you think Asia. Uh, it's Turkey. That's modern-day Turkey. All right, so Laodicea is a, is a city there that has uh, a number of things that are mentioned in it. Actually, this is one of, the, uh, one of only a couple of churches that are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, the book of Colossians mentions the church of Laodicea twice. 
in chapter 2, verse 1, and also again in chapter 4, verse 16. And Paul, at the end of the letter in chapter 4, he says to the, the church in Colossae, in the book of Colossians, he says, hey, you guys should make sure your letter gets sent to the city of Laodicea. And also, I sent a letter to them, and you should read their letter as well. Now, you probably know, if you're a Bible student, you don't have a book of your Bible that's named Laodicea, right? You have Colossians, but you don't have Laodiceans. Uh, And that's because not everything that Paul wrote was necessarily Scripture, right? Not every grocery list that he wrote out was like, oh, it's inspired of the Lord. We need to eat these things or whatever. Not everything he wrote was uh, was necessarily a, a scripturally inspired thing. It was good. I I assume it was very good. I assume it was very needful and very helpful, but we don't have those copies today, and it's not a part of of Scripture. And so Paul wrote this letter uh, to not only the Colossians, but also he wrote one to Laodicea and wanted them to swap letters. Now, this city, Laodicea, it was very wealthy and very self-sufficient. Uh, they, here, let me give you an example of um, the way, their self-sufficiency. In 60 AD, in the year 60 AD, there was a massive earthquake that leveled the city, completely destroyed it. Now, uh, think about that for a minute. Let's say an earthquake happened in Denver that destroyed a massive part of the city, and they declared it a federal emergency. And the federal government said, hey, we want to send funds to help you rebuild the city. And if Denver was to say, nah, we're so wealthy, we got it. That's what happened in Laodicea. They rejected funds from the federal government, from the Roman government, because they were so wealthy and so self-sufficient. They didn't want the Who does that? Right? The, the reason you do that is because of extreme arrogance. Right? It's more than just self-sufficiency. It's to say, we are so dang awesome. We are amazing. Let me show you how cool we are. Uh, so that's part of the, the culture of the city. Also, this city produced a unique glossy black wool, all right? So they had lots of different types of wool that they made, so they they would make this really uh, chic, uh, very expensive luxury garments, shiny black wool is what they would make it out of. Uh, They also were known for a medical ointment uh, that they would put on the eyes and the ears, um, and uh, it was made from the clay in the surrounding region of the city there, and uh, so they were known for that as well. They also uh, had a problem, the city had a problem, they had a bad water supply, so they had to literally uh, pipe water in via aqueduct from neighboring areas. And so they actually uh, piped in water from a nearby city called Hierapolis. And uh, there's an aqueduct that's been uncovered there. And that's how they got water to the city. Now, to this city, Jesus reveals himself. I'm, I know you're like, why the history lesson? Keep those things in mind. They matter, okay? We're going to get to some of those things in a minute, but keep those thoughts in mind, all right? Jesus reveals himself to this city um, in three ways, and two of them are loosely connected to chapter 1, verse 5, but there's nothing from chapter 1, verses 13 through 16 in that vision, which is what most of these letters are attached to. Notice what Jesus says. It says, these things says, number one, the amen, Number two, the faithful and true witness. And number three, the beginning of the creation. Now, Jesus, as he says this, uh, what we have to understand is that in each vision or each letter, each uh, representation that Jesus gives of himself in these letters, Jesus is the source of their power. He's also the solution to their problem. 
Every single time. So when he's saying these things, they're not just random thoughts disconnected. He's saying, you've got to see me if you're going to get things going the right direction. It's the first thing that's got to take place is getting a vision of Jesus. And so Jesus says that he's the amen. Uh, that's a, a word that we commonly use. We just say it at the end of our prayers, right? And uh, you're like, that's how you stamp it, so make sure God heard it, right? You say amen, and then that means that, no, that's not what it is at all. Amen is a word that means, it's a, it's a word of agreement. It's, it's to say, let it be, or let it be so. It's, so amen is a word of agreement like that. Actually, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, uh, in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, the word amen is translated as truth, and it's used as a title for God, that, that it's the God of truth. And this, the, the word truth is actually the Hebrew word amen. And so when Jesus says, I am the amen, he's saying, he's claiming deity. He's pointing back to Isaiah and saying, that's me, I'm God. But he's also saying, I'm the culmination of everything. Everything that finds its completeness, finds its completeness in me. You're not going to find it out there. You're not going to find it in your wealth, in your fancy clothes. You're not going to find it in your self-sufficiency. If you want to be complete, it's only going to be found in me. That's what Jesus is saying. Secondly, he calls himself the faithful and true witness. Now, this is a re-emphasis of the idea of amen, which is connected to the truth, but it's really heavily pointing to the idea of the truth, that he is, Jesus is the truth. He is the standard. He's the faithful one. He is the true witness. And, and whatever witness of God could be counted as the most faithful and true witness of God, but God himself that Jesus, as God, is revealing God as a witness of God. And so he's saying, I'm the one who's the standard. I am the one who has the insight that you need. And thirdly, he says there that he's the beginning of the creation of God. And some of you had a little heart attack, and you're like, oh, no, Jesus was created. I have to throw my Bible away. Not true. That's not at all what that's saying. Okay, the word beginning doesn't mean beginning the way that you and I think of beginning, like first in order of sequence, but it's the idea of that Jesus is the source. He's the source of creation. Like the book of Colossians in the beginning, it talks about how Jesus is the one who spoke creation into existence. That's what he's saying. It's not that Jesus was the one who was first created by God, not at all. It's the, the idea that he is the creator, that the only reason stuff is, is because of him. He's preeminent over all. And so this is how Jesus reveals himself to this church. Not only do we see a vision from Jesus, but we also see a correction from Jesus in verses 15 through 18. Look back at verse 15. It says this, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. Jesus says, I know. And, and in this, Jesus' knowledge, he says this again to every single church. He knows about the church. He's not disconnected or disengaged. He's fully engaged with every church. And Jesus here for the church of the Laodiceans, he only has critique for their works. And, no, and only correction. There's no commendation for their works. Why? Because their works are neither cold nor hot. Here's the idea. They had works. 
they seemed good on the outside. Everything seemed uh, really well established and, and everything seemed like it was happening the right way. And, you know, if we were to visit that church, we'd say, man, this church is awesome. Look at all the programs they have and look at their, look at their annual budget, man. These people are great. They got, a, they got a great budget. If you went to the board meeting of the church of Laodicea, you'd be like, man, this church is on fire. This church is going places. This is an amazing, amazing church. It, it looked like everything was going great. It seemed great on the outside, but they were actually in the middle. That's what lukewarm means. You're neither cold nor hot. They're in the middle. They were indifferent. They were passionless. They were passive. They were overcome by a good enough mentality. That, that mentality right there, the good enough mentality, is the one that drives me the most crazy. I cannot handle the good enough mentality. I, I don't know if you're like me, but I am very, if I'm in, I am all in. And if I'm not, I'm all not in. <laughs> That's just the way that I am. I'm not going to be in the squishy middle of, I don't know, I'm not just going to waver and waffle back and forth. It's just not the way that I'm made. But this church is exactly the opposite of that. They, they just, That's good enough. You know, we don't really need to pursue the Lord. We just can be in the middle. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. They are neither hot for the truth, nor hot for conversions, nor hot for holiness, they, they are not fiery enough to burn the stubble of sin, nor zealous enough to make Satan angry, nor fervent enough to make a living sacrifice of themselves upon the altar of their God. They are neither cold nor hot. See, Laodicea, this church, this city knew about lukewarm. So when Jesus says, you're in the middle, you're just lukewarm, they understood it. Why? Because their water had to be piped in, remember, from Hierapolis? And you know what, where, where the water source came from in Hierapolis? A hot spring, right? So the, the water starts off in Hierapolis about six miles away, and it goes through this aqueduct, which isn't force-fed through hydraulics, right? It's just gravity. And so it gets all the way down to Laodicea, and by the time it gets, it gets there, it's not cold, but it's not hot. It's this sort of lukewarm, kind of has that, uh, you know, egg smell to it, you know, like, like, like hot springs do. And Jesus is like, you know the way that water makes you sick? Your lukewarmness makes me sick. What a, what a stark thing that Jesus has to say. You see, also this aqueduct would make them vulnerable. Because they didn't have a water source, in that time, when someone wanted to come over and take over the region, like another army, they would just set up camp around the city. And when they did that, uh, they would just wait them out, right? And so they knew, the Laodiceans knew, we didn't have water inside the city that could sustain us. And so all that had to happen is if an invading army came along, they find the aqueduct, they cut off the water supply, now the city is overthrown. And they knew that in Laodicea, so they were very quick to find a compromise whenever they were attacked. They were very quick to say, all right, whatever, we'll, we'll just, whatever you want, we'll concede to you. And that mentality had crept its way into the church as well. They were willing to concede. They were willing to find compromise. They were willing to uh, be in that squishy middle, not really cold, but not really hot either. Now, Jesus says in verse 15, I could wish that you were cold or hot. And this idea of being cold or hot has uh, two applications to it, and I think both are valid, all right? The, the first one is the idea of usefulness. Cold water, let's just say water, uh, has use. Hot water has use. 
you know, um, I love hot coffee. I love hot coffee so much that while we were on vacation last week in Florida and it was 85 degrees, I drank hot coffee and I sweated like crazy just because that's the way I am. I just, I want my coffee hot, but I also, I want my Coke cold, right? When you give me the Coke zero, you know, when you give me the Coke, I'm going to get, I want it ice cold, it's like you come over to my house, I'm like, hey, you want a Coke? Uh, this one's been sitting out on the counter for the last week. You want that one? Nobody wants that. It's gross. If you leave your coffee out and it just kind of becomes room temperature, nobody wants that. You can order your coffee cold, you can order it hot, but nobody wants the one that's just been sitting there. It's just disgusting. It's just gross. Nobody wants that. So the idea of usefulness is uh, bound up in the idea of cold and hot, but also decisiveness is bound up with the uh, idea of cold and hot. That cold is to be against. I'm cold toward Jesus. I'm antagonistic toward Jesus. I don't want anything to do with him. I'm looking for ways to discredit Jesus. Cold And then there's hot. I'm on fire for Jesus. I'm passionate about Jesus. I'm pursuing Jesus. I want to know him in his word. I want to worship him. I want to be with his people. I'm pursuing the Lord. There's both sides. There's a decision to be made. Now, we might look at lukewarm and say it's in the middle and go, you know what? It's not cold, so it's better, right? It's, It's toward hot. But Jesus actually looks at lukewarm and says it's worse, It's worse to be in the squishy middle of indecision than it is to say, I hate you, Jesus. That's wild to me. That's not the way I think, but it's the way Jesus thinks. It's it's an incredible thing. David Guzik says it like this. I don't know if there's any soul harder to reach than the one who has had just enough of Jesus to think they have enough. To just kind of be in that spot of, ah, that's good enough. And so what does Jesus say in verse 16? So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Some of you are circling vomit. You're like, I didn't know that word was in the Bible. Uh, that's, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> Jesus has a very, very descriptive uh, thing going on here. He says, you make me want to puke. That's, that's crazy. They think their complacency is good. They think that they're being agreeable that they're being nice, that they're being, they're being, you know, we're just being friendly to the world. And so we're just making Jesus accessible. And Jesus says, you make me sick. This is crazy. Jesus is taking a very extreme stance on this. He actually thinks that their complacency is disgusting. My uncle, when I was growing up in, in junior high and high school, uh, we lived in Arizona. I grew up in Arizona, and he bought season tickets to Suns basketball. Now, uh, I, I grew up loving basketball. You can tell. I wear Jordans pretty much every week. Uh, and so uh, I grew up watching basketball, um, and uh, I was able to go to a number of Suns games with my uncle. And the Suns in the 90s, they were on fire. It was a tremendous team. I got to see legends play like Carl Malone. He played for Utah, but I got to see him play. I got to see Charles Barkley play, Steve Nash, Shaquille O'Neal. Uh, I was there in the game when he broke the backboard at the Suns Stadium. Uh, I saw Dennis Rodman play, um, Scottie Pippen, and of course, the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan. Uh, I got to see all these people play. And I can tell you that the, the feeling of a basketballer arena with these legends 
is electric. There is nothing like it that I've experienced. It's this amazing thing where you got, you know, tens of thousands of people. They're, you know, they're all like for or against. You know, there's, there's fans and then there's, you know, antagonists at every game. And uh, man, there is chanting going on. People are, are just excited about what's taking place and going on. It is absolutely amazing. Well, I also had the chance to go to a uh, Nuggets game a few years ago. Not before some of the, the newer players, you know, Jokic and all that. But, uh, uh, you know, I got to go to a game then, and the stadium was about half full. And I don't think anybody knew there was a basketball game going on. It was the most depressing, terrible game I had ever been to. I'm, like, yelling, and I think I'm the only one in the whole stadium Yelling at the court, you know, because that's how I am with basketball. Um, and, and so it was just, it was absolutely terrible. I bet you the players felt the same way. They're like, at least hate us. Like, it just anything would be better than sitting there, like, texting in the middle of the game and not really caring. Do something other than that. They were just lukewarm as fans. And see, Jesus, he has an issue with their lukewarmness, not so much that it's lukewarm, but that they're okay with it. They're not, it's not just that they're lukewarm, but they're like, yeah, this is actually good. We should stay here. We should, make, we should make our house here in the middle of lukewarm. They were satisfied to remain that way. You see, when you realize you have grown stale, it's time to address it, not just appease it and accept it. Think about it like this. Relationships have, uh, they only work with healthy dissatisfaction. Relationships only work with healthy dissatisfaction. I mean, think about it like this. If I become satisfied with my pursuit of my bride, Micah, I, I tell her, you know what? I just, I don't really care anymore. I don't, I don't really want to know about you anymore. I already know all there is to know. You're a Disney freak, you know. Um, that's all, it, you know, you need, you need Starbucks every day. I don't know. There's, that's it. I got, I got it. I, I got everything. If I do that, then what I do is I commit treason on our relationship and I kill it with my indifference. That's what I'm doing in the relationship. Relationships only work with healthy dissatisfaction. And so if we have this satisfied relationship with Jesus in an unhealthy way, then, then we're committing treason on the relationship. There is a sense in which you should never be satisfied with Jesus, that you need more of him, that you're always pursuing him deeper and you open his word to discover more about him. You don't just go, yeah, I already read that. I, 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 don't, need to, I don't need to look at that anymore. Verse 17 says this, because, Jesus says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, when you can't see Jesus correctly, you can't correctly see yourself either and you end up in a self-deluded thinking that you are way better off than you really are. They looked at their situation, they looked at their state and they said, hey, we're doing really, really well. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, you actually have nothing that you think you have. Now, when Jesus looks at their wealth, his issue isn't with physical wealth. It's not like he's saying, you have money, and so you're bad people. That, if you saw that, and that's how you interpreted that, that's totally wrong. Uh, the, the, there are many wealthy saints in the Bible. Abraham was ridiculously wealthy. Boaz, David, Solomon, Job, Daniel, Barnabas, and Paul, uh, lots of New Testament saints as well. There are lots and lots of saints who had lots and lots of money. First Timothy chapter 6 verse 10 says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the truth, uh, from the true faith, and pierced themselves with many sorrows. You see, money isn't evil. It's loving money that opens the door to evil. 
It's loving money. Wayne Grudem, a theologian, he wrote a book. If, you don't, if you're in business in any way, uh, if you manage anybody, you got to read this book. It's Business for the Glory of God. In that book, he actually argues that money is not morally evil. He says it's not actually even morally neutral. It's actually good. It's morally good. And we corrupt it with, by pursuing it with our love. Here's an interesting thing about money. You don't have to have it in order to love it. Right? Sometimes we go, yeah, the love of money, all those rich people. Yeah, maybe it's us. Maybe it's, maybe it's where we see ourselves, and, and maybe it's the ones who say, we don't really have much of it, but I'm in love with it, and I'm pursuing it. That opens the door to all kinds of evil. You see, Jesus' issue is that they, uh, that they lost their love for him, or they had never had a sense of desperation. They either lost their sense of desperation, or they never had one. They were just kind of going through the religious motions. You see, the church was just like the culture. The church was wealthy. The church was self-reliant. The church was arrogant. 1 Timothy 6, 17, so in chapter 6, a little bit further on, in verse 17, in that same chapter, it says this, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Now, leave that verse up for a couple of seconds. I want to I talk about this for just a second. Here's the thing. G, Paul, Paul here, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God is saying that those who are rich need to uh, um, uh, not to be proud because they are or trust in their money. He doesn't say hate your money. He doesn't say throw it away. He doesn't say burn it. He doesn't say that it's a bad thing at all. He just says don't trust in it or be proud. Uh, but then notice what it says at the end. God richly gives you all things to enjoy. What a crazy idea. That God actually is giving you stuff. He's giving you finances. He's giving you wealth. And part of it is because he wants you to enjoy it. What, what an amazing God that we serve. You see, the issue that we're talking about here with this, with this finances is that faith that is placed in money is misplaced faith. Jesus is saying, stop trusting in your wealth, thinking that that's got you covered. You've got to put your faith in me. That's what Jesus is calling them to. Warren Wearsby says this, they had become proud of their ministry and had begun to measure things by human standards instead of spiritual values. They were, in the eyes of the Lord, wretched and miserable and poor. They thought their wealth was a sign that God was for all the things that they were about. That, you know, hey, God's blessing us. Uh, financially, and so he must be for all of our things, right? Do you know any um, corrupt people who have lots of money? Anybody know? Anyone, can you name one person? <laughs> maybe, maybe a couple come to mind. Money is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. It can be, but it's not necessarily a sign of God's blessing and approval. So they thought they're doing well, therefore God must be for their stuff. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. You see, from their perspective, everything was great, but Jesus sees disaster and he's looking at their terribly desperate situation and what does he do? He offers hope. That's what Jesus does. 
He looks at their disaster and their destruction. And if you go down this road and you keep going this way, it's not going to end well. But there's hope. He extends a hand of grace. Now, we noted a bunch of details in the beginning about this city. And those details are going to sort of show themselves as fruitful here in this verse. Jesus, the first thing he tells him is says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. This is people who are extremely wealthy, ridiculously wealthy. And Jesus says, you don't actually have wealth. You're actually poor. And you need to buy gold from me. You see, they believed gold was wealth, but Jesus has hidden wealth in relationship with him that money could never buy and money could never compete with. And so Jesus invites them into this relationship. Notice the second thing he says to them is he says that they need a white garment. You see that there? White garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Now, what Jesus isn't saying is, you guys make this really cool black cloth, and I don't like black, I like white, and so I want you to change the color of your, cloth, your clothes. That is not at all what's going on here. It's not a color preference. If you remember before when we looked at the, uh, the church of Sardis in the beginning of chapter 3, the idea of a white garment is the idea of holiness, that it's not the color itself, it's what it represents. And so what Jesus is saying is, take off this black garment that represents your sinfulness and put on this white garment that represents my holiness. Jesus is saying, I'm willing to exchange with you this clothing. You see, Jesus alone can cover the shame of our sinfulness and give us his righteousness. We can't cover our own shame by, by trying to do better things or trying to drown it out or trying to just, uh, you know, overcome it with a, a lot of good works. We can't overcome our, sh our shame, but Jesus can. Jesus can fix the shame uh, that, that stains our souls. And the third thing Jesus says is also the idea of eye salve. He says, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. Interestingly, uh, modern scientists have gone to this region and they've done some analysis of the clay and they found that the clay has no healing properties at all. So they're making this eye salve and they're selling it out of the clay. They're selling it all around the region and people are like, yeah, I need that stuff. I got this eye problem. And they, they're putting this stuff, they're anointing their eyes with this mud that does nothing. Sounds like a lot of our medical stuff today, right? Uh, there's a bunch of, here, buy this drug, you know, um, uh, does nothing. Um, no, we got to force you to, anyway. Um, so, there's a lot I could say. All right, so, but it's been around for a long time, this whole concept of medical stuff that does absolutely nothing, but they're trying to get you to do it. Why? Because they make money. That's what they did there. And so Jesus is saying, your eye salve does nothing, but I can give you true sight. Do you really want to see? Do you really want to know what it's like to have vision? Come to me, Jesus says. I have that for you. Jesus alone gives true sight. You see, apart from Jesus, we are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. And if we reject this truth, then we will be complacent. We'll be lukewarm. We'll see no need for Jesus. We won't see Jesus clearly or reflect him correctly. Thirdly and finally, we have a promise from Jesus in verses 19 through 22. Verse 19 says this, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. 
You see, Jesus has a very harsh assessment of this church. Think about this. If Jesus was to say this to you, maybe you sense he's saying it to you right now. You think you have everything under control, but you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. That's, that's harsh. Jesus is being mean. Jesus is saying not nice things right now. And he's, he's coming and attacking their complacent arrogance with force and with precision. Why? Not because he's angry, but because he loves them. Do you see that there in verse 19? As many as I love, I rebuke. See, this hurt them, but it, was not, it wasn't Jesus just being mean. It was the most loving thing he could have said to them. The worst, the most hateful thing Jesus could have said to, to this church was, you're doing fine. Everything's great, guys. Keep going. Good job. Good work. Why? That would condemn a number of people in the church to hell as well as that city because they would not be living the truth. A number of these people, the reason that they're blind and naked and, and uncovered, the reason is because they've never believed in Jesus. They've never come into relationship with him at all. They're going through the motions of church. They, they show up every week. They sing the songs. They read the scriptures. They do the things. They do the dance. But there's no relationship. And what Jesus is saying is, don't put your hope in that. Don't think that because you're doing the religious dance that that buys you some sort of ticket into heaven. If you remember when Jesus was talking about how there are going to be some people who say, Jesus, we did all these miracles for you. We, we healed the sick. We cast out demons in your name. And, and we should be led into heaven. And you know what Jesus' response to them was in Matthew? I never knew you. Away from me. I never knew you. Relationship is everything. It's not the religious dance that Jesus is looking for. It's relationship. Hebrews 12, 7 through 8 says this. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Whoever heard of a child who is never disciplined by his father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means that you are illegitimate and not really his child at all. When people come up to me and they say, you know what, I do this sin, fill in the blank, whatever the sin it is, and I don't really feel any conviction. I think God's okay with it. I don't agree with him and say, yeah, that's cool. Go ahead, do whatever you want. I think you got a serious problem. You have a very serious relationship problem with God because his word says, if you're really his child, he's going to discipline you. The, the word discipline there is the same word that we would use for spank. The, the same way that a father would spank his child in order to correct the child away from something wrong, away from something sinfulness, is what the, God's word says he does for us. He will discipline our lives. So if you don't feel any corrective discipline from God, that's not a good thing. It's a very, very bad thing that you're experiencing that. You see, when you know you're wrong and you sense God's displeasure, it's a gift from him because he's leading you away from your sinfulness and toward him. And so what does Jesus do? He offers three things in verse uh, 18. There, that you know, he says, buy these things for me. But how do you buy them? Well, two things are necessary there in verse 19. It says this, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous, number one, and repent. How do you buy these things, the gold and the white garments and the, uh, um, the eye salve? How do you get that from Jesus? How do you buy it from him? Well, Jesus says there are two things that are necessary. Be zealous. This word is literally be hot. That's what be zealous is, right? So he's saying, you're neither cold nor hot. Stop it, be hot, right? Not attractive, but really on fire for me. That's what he's saying. He says, go after me with all you are. 
The, the reason for that is because you've got to allow the truth to stir you up. If you don't care, you won't see any need for Jesus or repentance. If you think you're fine, if you're okay just sitting in indecision in the lukewarm no man's land, then you will find yourself in a place where you don't think you need the, the forgiveness Jesus offers. And then number two won't matter, right? Repent and repent. This is the idea to, to not just feel bad. Oh gosh, I feel bad about this. But you do something about it. You feel bad and then you abandon that sin and you pursue Jesus. You turn to him. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says it like this. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. It is possible to feel bad about what you've done and not turn away from it. It is possible to know it's wrong, to, to not want to do it, to even feel bad that you've done it and fall short of repentance. Because repentance requires not just acknowledging the wrong, not just knowing that, that it's bad, it requires going to Jesus and asking for him to cleanse for him to give that wealth, for him to cover the shame with that white garment, for him to give you sight by his spirit. We've got to come to Jesus with that sin. We've got to repent and turn to him. See, verse 20, Jesus says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. This verse is simultaneously extremely shocking and surprising. Now, this verse, you've probably most often heard it in some sort of evangelistic message or saying, you know, Jesus is standing on the, at the door of your heart and he's knocking and if you'll open the door then, then, and let him in, then you'll experience relationship with him, which is absolutely true, totally true. But who is Jesus saying this to? His church. Like, imagine we lock Jesus out, right? And he's got to be outside knocking. Hey, guys, can I come in too? That's, that is shocking, that is a big problem that Jesus is outside of his church. Uh, that, that, shows us, that shows us that much of this church is just religious, but they're not saved. They're not actually Christians. They haven't actually come into relationship with him because they are doing this stuff that's called church. It's possible for a place to be called a church and have no relationship with Jesus at all have no connection to him whatsoever. It's not only shocking, but it's also surprising because Jesus is humbly seeking relationship. What is he doing? He's standing outside and he's knocking. Okay, let me just say it this way. Jesus, God who speaks and universes come out, do you think he has authority to do whatever he wants? If Jesus wants into this church, can he just bust the door open? Could he just maybe do what he did with the disciples and go through the wall and pop inside, you know, and like show up? Absolutely. Jesus can do whatever he wants. But instead, he stands outside and he knocks. There's a famous painting of this verse, and uh, it's Jesus standing outside and knocking, and on the door, there's no handle. And the reason is because the handle is only on the inside, that, that it has to be opened from the inside. Jesus couldn't open it on his own. Not that he can't, but that he decides not to. Uh, um, G, J. Vernon McGee in his uh, commentary, he says it like this, the Lord Jesus has moved heaven and hell to get to the door of your heart. But when he gets there, he will stop and knock. You will have to open the door to let him in. He is an absolute gentleman. He won't force himself on you. He's not gonna bust down the door and try to get you to 
into submission through some sort of UFC choke. That's just not the way Jesus operates. He's going to allow you to make that decision. Now notice also in verse 20, it says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, you see that? If anyone, that, that is singularly uh, directed. This isn't to the church as a whole. This is individually directed. That's kind of an incredible thing. It's not, it's not the organization that Jesus is giving this uh, um, address to. It's the individual. Charles Spurgeon says this, We must not talk about setting the church right. We must pray for grace, each one for himself. For the text does not say if the church will open the door, but if any man hear my voice and open the door. It must be done by individuals. The church will only get right by each man getting right. right. It's not an organization thing. It's an individual thing. And as we individually decide we will pursue Jesus and we will let him into every aspect of our lives, then we together will be able to accomplish much in the kingdom of God. Verse 21. Oh, uh, before we move on, notice what Jesus says there. I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus says, I want to have dinner with you. Okay, now this, for us, might be lost on us. It's sort of a, a relationship thing where we eat together, but if you're anything like our house, we get these, like, uh, um, you know, card table things out, and we sit around the couch sometimes and eat dinner that way. Oh, I'm not supposed to tell that. Uh, we never do that. Uh, we sit at the table every night and have deep conversation about all sorts of things. Right, like, eating is sort of a relationship thing, but it's not so deep of a relationship thing. In this culture, they ate what we call family style, where they put all the food in the middle of the table, and then everyone would reach in and tear pieces off. And they actually thought, the Jewish mind actually thought that by doing so, if we were to eat together, I would be ingesting part of you, and you would be ingesting part of me. That we would literally become part of each other's lives. That it was a deep intimate thing. When Jesus says, I'll come in and eat with you, he's not like saying, hey, let's just go get a burger. What he's saying is, I want the most deep, intimate relationship with you possible. I want to become part of your life so that it's inextricably linked, so that it is indistinguishable that I'm part of you and deep into your life. All right, verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Like we've said all the way through, the overcomer is not the one who achieves something, but instead the one who receives something. That Jesus is the one who gets the victory and then he gives it to you. He, he gives you his victory. That's the idea of the overcomer. So how do you overcome a lukewarm heart, right? That's the issue that Jesus is addressing. How do you overcome a lukewarm heart? Well, you've got to see Jesus as God. Remember the vision of Jesus back from the beginning? You have to believe Jesus' assessment of you, that he's right about your life, that he's right about what, how things are happening within you, that you have to hear Jesus' call. Remember, Jesus is outside the door, and he's calling. And if you hear his voice, you hear his call, you have to go deeper with Jesus in that relationship where it's not just pulling him in as a buddy, as a friend, or as a, some sort of salesman where you answer the door and then you shut it as quickly as possible, that you invite Jesus in. And what Jesus does, he promises this mysterious reward that you get to sit down on his throne with him. The throne of God. What a, what a mysterious and amazing thing that, that God would say, come sit with my throne on me. It's, it's on, on my throne with me. Kind of like a kid that goes in to sit with their, their dad in this high prestigious office. I don't know, maybe a judge or the president or something, and they sit in that seat with them that, that Jesus invites us in. 
Verse 22, and he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, the truth is that we are much more like the Laodicean church than we like to admit, right? There's much more complacency and lukewarmness within my heart than I want to admit. I want to be like, you know, last week, the church of Philadelphia. They're on fire. They're killing it. There's an open door. Jesus doesn't have anything negative to say about that church whatsoever. That's how I want to envision myself. But the truth is I'm a lot more like the Laodiceans than I would like to admit. There's a good enough lukewarm mentality that tends to grip our hearts. And Jesus is calling out to us. He's calling out to you today. He's inviting you to overcome your complacent attitude and to be filled with passion and to be filled with fire, to know him. The question is, will you open the door of your heart to Jesus? Will you keep it closed? Will you leave him outside in the cold? Or will you invite him in? Will you acknowledge your sinfulness? And will you ask for his forgiveness? Will you go back to that relationship with him once again and restoke the flames of that relationship? Because Jesus is longing for that. He's pursuing that in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the chance to open it, to study it, to think upon it, and to consider it. And we pray that you would withdraw from us, remove from us any complacent attitude. God, forgive us for having lukewarm hearts toward you. Forgive us for being in that squishy middle of no man's land, of, of nowhere. And God, give us a fire, a passion, a burning desire for you. Lord, the only reason we can say that is because you first had that passion for us. Your word tells us that the only reason we can love you is because you first loved us. And so let us feel and acknowledge and embrace your great love that we might return it to you and to the rest of this world. So we pray that you be glorified among us today in Jesus' name. Amen.